0: Tonight, we're continuing our study of Isaiah, and uh, the first couple of lessons have been more background and historical. And tonight, we're going to launch into the first chapter of Isaiah. And Isaiah chapter 1 is really kind of an overview, if you will, and it's an introduction to the whole prophecy. And as you work through the first chapter of Isaiah, you can see themes that are going to be worked out in more detail throughout the rest of the book. And so almost every major issue that Isaiah is going to deal with is at least there in seed form in chapter 1. And so it's, it's really an opening salvo, if you will, as God declaring his word to his people through his prophet Isaiah And, of course, we've already seen, we spent some time in verse 1 already, and so won't really spend a lot of time here. Basically, this is the title of the whole book, and it kind of sets it out as a vision, the whole thing, being vision or a collection of visions that Isaiah had received from the Lord. And it breaks it down into the time frame in which Isaiah ministered. And we've already looked at some of that historical information during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so this is the opening title of the book. And then we move into the rest of chapter 1, and the, the whole chapter really is uh, an opening declaration of God's word to his people. And the whole thing kind of takes the, the feel of a courtroom setting, of, of God kind of being like a prosecuting attorney, and bringing witnesses, bringing charges against God's people for what they have done. They've they failed, they've broken the covenant. And and God is bringing an indictment against them along with evidence and witnesses and charges. And so it kind of has that feel to it. And so the opening couple of verses God brings in the witnesses. He brings the witnesses against his people. And so in verse 2 and 3 Isaiah says from the Lord, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. So who are the witnesses? Heaven and earth are the witnesses against God's people. So listen, heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey, its owner's manager. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And so the sovereign Lord, we're going to see this phrase many times throughout Isaiah. This phrase, the Lord has spoken. And it's, it has that very solemn feel to it, doesn't it? It's a very solemn, serious feel. And it's because it's intended to be that way it is intended to communicate the sovereignty of the creator God who not only created them from the very beginning as the creator of everything, but also he created them in the sense of being their loving redeemer and drawing them out, rescuing them by grace out of a land of slavery and bringing them into a land of promise, making a covenant with them. And so he's really their creator in two senses. in in making them from the beginning, but also in making them a special, unique people uh, to himself. And so the Lord has spoken. It's his authority, and it's being communicated through his chosen spokesman, through Isaiah. And he calls heaven and earth to be witnesses to the stand against his people. And if you think about it, what better witnesses to give testimony to what has gone on than heaven and earth? They've pretty much seen everything, haven't they? So they've seen everything, and also they are they're being called by the one who has authority to call them, the one who made them. And so they're being called as witnesses. And the Lord gives a declaration in verses 2 and 3. First of all, he says, I reared children, and I brought them up. It's, uh, it's the language of tender, loving care. So it's the language of of parenthood, of giving birth to a people by grace and then, and then investing in them like a parent would to a child and, and giving them everything they need and bringing them up and giving them so many blessings that you could not count them. So I, I've brought up these people, I've reared them, but they have rebelled against me. So it's a... It's a, what, a, what an incredible slight against God. Disrespect, rebellion against God, that He would invest all of this grace and care and love into these people, and they continue to turn their backs on it. And then in verse 3, He says, even animals do better than this. That's basically the, 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 the force of verse 3. An ox knows its master, the donkey, its owner's manager. So you can train an ox, you can train a donkey, that they'll listen to the voice of its owner. And you can give them certain voice commands, and they'll heed those commands. So in, in many ways, God is saying an animal is more malleable. An animal is, an animal is more trainable than even these stubborn people of Israel. So Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And one of the questions here in verse number three, when we come across the word Israel is again, this is where it helps to think about the historical situation. So we have a divided kingdom at this point. Usually uh, the Northern kingdom is referred to as Israel and the Southern kingdom is referred to as Judah in the introduction I mentioned that mostly Isaiah is focused on Jerusalem and Judah. So what do we do with this? Who is he specifically referring to here when he says Israel? Is he talking about the Northern tribes and their great rebellion that ever since they broke away from the line of David, they've been in rebellion ever since, or is he talking about the people of Judah in the South of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin Um, Even though he uses the word Israel here, I tend to think that he's focused on the southern tribes. And uh, the reason I think that is because as we move forward into chapter 1, we're going to see him specifically mention Zion, which Zion is always a reference to Jerusalem in the scriptures. And so even though he says Israel, kind of the broader term, I think he's referring mostly to Judah that were in the line, that were under the line of David's descendants. And so God's bringing witnesses. And then in verses four through nine, we see God describe the people. He describes the people and their current situation, as well as not only the people, but also their land. And so first of all, he describes the people in verses four through six. And, In verses four through six, he says, Woe to this sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten any more? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. So here is a general description of the condition of his people. So what's their condition? They're sinful. And the idea here of a woe is um, the idea of judgment. The idea of a serious, negative thing that's coming. Woe. Woe to the sinful nation. So they're sinful. Their guilt is great. They're guilty. They're called a brood of evildoers. And the word here, brood, is sometimes translated as offspring or as seed. And so the idea here is that the, the sin of Judah has transferred from generation to generation. And it's been a cyclical thing from generation to generation. Children given to corruption. And so all kinds of descriptors of sin, sin, guilty, evildoers, corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, turned their backs on him, and they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Again, last week we looked at this phrase, the Holy One of Israel, because it's a common descriptor of the Lord throughout all of Isaiah. And we mentioned last time that probably one of the reasons why he likes to use this description of the Lord is probably because of his original call that we'll see in Isaiah chapter six, where he sees the Lord in in this vision, high and lifted up, his glory filling the temple and the voice of the, the angel saying, Holy, Holy Holy is the Lord God almighty. And so that vision probably just stuck with Isaiah. And and so often when he refers to the Lord, he refers to him as the holy one of Israel. And it emphasizes his uniqueness, his set apartness, that that he is to be honored and regarded as holy. But they've rebelled against him. They've turned their backs on him. And then he he almost pleads with them in verses five and six. Why would you go on like this? Because it's only doing you harm. So why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? And then he describes their condition. Their head is injured, their heart afflicted, the soles of their foot to the top of their head. There is no soundness. In other words, he says, you're, he describes them as a, an injured or a sick body that has been beaten. Sores, wounds, welts, unbandaged wounds, uncleaned up wounds. Just kind of like somebody that's been in a a street fight, left on the ground, beaten up and bruised and bleeding. And the implication in verses 5 and 6 is that all of their the, that condition is due to their rebellion. Which means that these are probably the the disciplinary actions of the Lord. These are God's disciplinary actions against his people. And and here's the thing is every single one of his disciplinary actions is intended to draw them back. It's intended to turn them around. But as he said in verse number three, my people don't understand. They don't get it. And so the fact is they've had enemies come in and raid them. They've had famines. They've had lack of food. They've had raiders come in and steal their food. They've, they've had all of this negative, all these negative things happening, but their, their eyes have been blinded to see that all of these events are not just happenstance. These are, just, these are not just flukes of history, but this is the sovereign hand of the Lord seeking to, to discipline his people and bring them back. But all of these negative things that have happened, they've not listened. They, they've not taken the lesson that those events were intended to, to convey. And so here's his people, bruised and beaten because of their rebellion. And their actions have not only affected them, but also the land, which, remember, this is God's holy land, right? So this is, this is the Lord's. And so this is, this is his. His. This is his land, and their sin has affected everything. He says, your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion, here's that reference to Jerusalem. I think he's talking about Judah. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. So the land, again, more of the negative results, the the desperate circumstances that have come upon them because of their sin. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that he describes them in this very open, vulnerable position. So I think that's the intended meaning of when he uses these uh, images of a hut in a cucumber field or um, like a shelter in a vineyard. These are little kind of makeshift little tents or like hut type things that, that you would put up in the field to take a break in when you were working. You could come in, find some cool in the shade, but those things are never intended to hold off an army, right? So he says... My people are exposed. They think they're safe inside the shade under the shelter, but their shelters are meaningless. Their shelters are worthless, and they're under siege. And all of these negative things, all these disciplinary actions from the Lord, and yet God still, in all of his disciplinary actions, has been merciful. Isn't that amazing? That Isaiah says that, the Lord has held his hand back. He has not treated us as we deserved. If he treated us as we deserved, then we would have the same result as Sodom and Gomorrah, which was what? Total destruction, right? But God's people have not been totally destroyed because he has withheld his hand of judgment in mercy and spared many And so even in discipline, the Lord is merciful. And so this is a condition of the Lord's people. Then we see him bring the charges and indictment against the Lord's people. And we see this in verses 10 through 15, especially. And so God continuing to look like a prosecuting attorney, he challenges them. He challenges his people and he brings charges against them. So here's the situation, verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, time out. Who's he talking about? He's still talking about Judah. He had just in the previous verse said that the Lord, if He had not held back His hand of judgment, if He had not showed us mercy, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah in its destruction. But now, kind of turning on that that link there, the Lord is saying, "You are like Sodom and Gomorrah in your actions." So God did not make you to become like Sodom and Gomorrah in your total destruction. But you are very much like Sodom and Gomorrah in your actions, in the way that you're living. And so he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. What an affront, right? If if they had any ears at all to hear what Isaiah was saying to them, what an insult for the covenant people of the Lord to be called Sodom and Gomorrah, perhaps the most renowned wicked people in the history of the world that that God rained down fire on and destroyed... And Isaiah is calling them that, Sodom and Gomorrah. And you say, okay, so what are they doing? Why would he call them Sodom and Gomorrah? Are they involved in homosexuality, in great perversion? But interestingly, in verse 11, he mentions their sacrifices. He actually mentions their worship. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. You might, you might ask, why would Isaiah say this? Didn't, didn't the Lord prescribe sacrifices? Leviticus lays them out, right? All the sin offerings, the burnt offerings, the, the, the different guilt offerings. So the, the sacrifices were from the Lord. And he told them how to offer them uh, these special events on the calendar, new moons and Sabbaths and, and uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Passover, Feast of Tabernacles. These are divinely instituted special times on the calendar. Why would the Lord say he's not interested in them? Why would he say, I don't care about your sacrifices? He gives the answer in verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Now, that blood is not the blood of offering sacrifices. It's the blood of injustice. It is the blood of murder. It's the blood of mistreating one another. It's the blood of oppression And basically, what Isaiah is saying here is the Lord is not interested in your religious ritualism. And last time we met, I mentioned this is one of the great themes of Isaiah. In fact, many of the pre exilic prophets, one of their great themes is the Lord is not interested in your empty prayers, in your empty sacrifices, in your empty festivals because basically what you're doing is you're going out and you're living any way that you want to live and you're disregarding God's covenant and you're disobeying his word and you're you're worshiping idols and you're mistreating your neighbor and and you're defrauding one another and all of this is in, in breach of the covenant and then you think that you can turn around and bring a, a, a lamb and and sacrifice it and pour its blood on the altar and everything's fine. And Isaiah is saying from the Lord, the Lord's not interested in that kind of a sacrifice. Does God still desire sacrifices? Absolutely. It's a part of his word. But the sacrifice that he desires is one that comes from a true heart, one that comes from a heart of obedience, a heart that desires to live within the covenant, not as a get out of jail free card. Like, I'm going to do all this and then I'll bring a sacrifice and that's my get out of jail free card and everything's great. Isaiah says, no, the Lord's not going to accept that. Your sacrifice is meaningless if it's not well intended. And so the Lord was not interested in their religious ritualism. So what is God's solution for the people? Isaiah, from the Lord, offers the people an opportunity. He offers them a choice, a decision point. And it's interesting because through most of the chapter, God has presented himself like a prosecuting attorney. But here, he actually seems to act as their advocate. And he seems to be giving them some advice. This is what you should do. Here's how you should respond. And so God commands them, here's how you respond to this. Verses 16 and 17. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And here you can see in context that this is how we know that the blood on their hands is social injustice. Because here he says, Wash your hands, wash yourselves clean. How do you do that? By repenting and by changing, by by obeying the covenant, not disregarding the covenant. So instead of mistreating one another, defend the oppressed. Instead of injustice, seek justice. Seek the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. And so basically the message is repent. Repent. Turn from your evil ways. And the Lord says to them in verse 18 through 20, that, that when you come in humility and faith and repentance, the Lord will cleanse you. The Lord will cleanse you. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And this is a verse from Isaiah that we love to quote. Because it is a great picture of what what we receive in the sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah. And that through faith in him, through repentance, that we receive the cleansing of our sins. We receive cleansing And this is what God is offering to his disobedient, rebellious people. Repent, believe, come in humility, and your sins will be as white as snow. But, verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the Lord. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, Isaiah The Lord's messenger, he's offering them a very clear turning point, isn't he? You want to be healed, you want to be restored, you want to be cleansed, then believe in the Lord's word and repent. But if you refuse, if you resist, then you will receive destruction. The choice is very, very clear. And then in verses 21 through 26, we see God lamenting for his people. God lamenting for his people. And so we see Jerusalem's sinful condition in verses 21 to 23. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. Again, this is how we I believe that Israel toward the beginning of the chapter is talking about Jerusalem and Judah. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute? Well, wow, how how much of a contrast is that? The faithful city, the city of righteousness, is now known as a prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. And so here you can see that Isaiah is not only indicting all of the people, but now he's turning his attention specifically on the leaders. And often is the case, as the leaders go, so go the people, Right? And so the leaders are taking bribes. They're taking money on the side and they're not concerned with true justice and pleading the cause of those who have nothing to give. And what was once a faithful city, what was, what was once the place where King David reigned? in justice What was once the place where Solomon's wisdom reigned? It's now a place of injustice and murder and oppression. And God is lamenting it. And so there's a purge coming. There's a purge coming. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, "Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. What's striking here is he refers to his people as his enemies. And he's going to come in judgment, but with the intent of purifying, right? Just like in, in the, the, the metaphor of metalworking, you heat up the metal, you test the metal so that you can remove the dross, so you can remove the impurities. This is the image that Isaiah is using. So I'm going to purge away your dross and remove your impurities. I'll restore your leaders as in days of old. In other words, what does God desire? He wants righteous leaders. Like David, like Solomon, like Josiah, like Hezekiah, like others who have been righteous. But ultimately, I believe this promise is pointing to something even more spectacular than that, isn't it? That I'm going to restore your leaders with a righteous leader, and you, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city, city. I think ultimately that's going to take place with Jesus. in the new Jerusalem that John describes in Revelation coming down, a new and faithful city. And so God is going to bring judgment, but with the idea of purging it, of evil, of purifying it. And then the last part of chapter one is God's promise to his people. God's promise to his people. And this promise, as, as he leaves this opening oracle, if you will, this opening declaration, it's left again with two clear options. And that is a blessing to the repentant. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. So, you can see there the emphasis on sorrow for sin, on the penitent ones. That to them they will be delivered with justice and they will go into this place of righteousness that the Lord is promising. But here's the other option judgment to transgressors. Rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. And I think this is most likely reference to false worship. These sacred oaks, these gardens, they were probably um, pagan holy places. In that they were places where false altars or false places of worship were set up to idols. And so you delighted in those things, but because you delighted in those things, you'll be like an oak with fading leaves and like a garden without water. So he uses the images of those sacred places and he turns them around and turns them into images of destruction and fading away. And so the mighty man will become tender and his work a spark and both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. That's a pretty solemn declaration of judgment, isn't it? So just, just in review, we can see already in chapter one, all three of the main things that Isaiah talks about throughout idolatry, false worship, social injustice, breaking the commands of God by mistreating your neighbor, and religious ritualism, the idea that you can cover up your bad behavior with religious deeds, and God will have none of it. What he desires is not fake repentance with bringing just an outward act of religiosity. What he desires is true repentance, which comes from the heart. And so this is, this is a, a very clear uh, opening message to the Lord's people. And and obviously many of these things are going to be gone into in greater detail throughout Isaiah. He's going to use different images, different poetry. He's going to, he's going to highlight different specific sins. And, and, but he's, he's dealing with these fundamental issues. And so as we think about it as today... With, with us as believers in Christ, some of these basic things that Isaiah was talking about, they still resonate with us. So is it possible for us to fall into idolatry? Absolutely. I mean, John, in the end of his letter, 1 John 5, says, My little children, keep yourselves from idols. So we are, we're prone to idolatry just as much as the people of Judah were. Are we capable of religious ritualism? Absolutely. You know, um, I check my box. I go to church once a week or three times a week. Or, you know, I check my box of giving my tithe, or I check my box of getting baptized, or you know, whatever it is. And and yet they go out and live however we will want to live, and think that, well, I'm good because I come and and I bring my sacrifice, or or I bring my my prayer, or I bring this. But but it's empty, and the Lord's not interested in it. Are we potentially guilty of social injustice and not caring for a neighbor? Absolutely. You know, most of us here are not necessarily in positions of power like a, a political figure or a judge who hears cases and has to decide between those who are guilty or innocent and, and listen to the, the cause of someone who is being oppressed. But we're still, we still find ourselves in opportunities where we can either help or hurt our neighbor. And and so these messages are very much applicable to us. And so I hope that as we walk through Isaiah, uh, those kinds of things will be on our minds and think about how this is not just for them back then, but some of the same things that they fell prey to, we can as well.